finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. Hi, everybody. This is Andrea from Dried Up Brain, and I have a very special episode for you, straight from the cortex. Written, produced, directed, and starring Nate Osterman, an original audiobook from one of his short stories. Without further ado, we present Nine Billion Miles by Nate Osterman. Most would lie and say they remember where they were when we all found out it was coming. Why wouldn't they? It ended up being the most important moment in the short, tragic history of humanity. But that's the thing, though. You usually don't see history while you're living in it. Very rarely do you get to watch the bodies fall, the walls bust apart, and know that this is the big deal. This is the picture that winds up in the history books. This is the moment when it all changes, and you can feel the life leak out of the old world as the new one bursts forth from its chest, wet and screaming. And usually the old world's dead long before you realize it. You gotta take a moment during every big finale to stop yourself from getting caught up in the role of the timpani and walk back in your mind to the real second when everything actually changed. If you do that, you usually realize that you have no idea what you were doing when it happened. But I really do remember. Genuinely. I know that sounds like bullshit, but at this point, I don't really have a reason to bullshit. I was eight years old, and it was my dad's weekend with me. I didn't know yet. But that weekend was going to wind up lasting 10 years. I was reading a book about ghosts and drinking a chocolate milk when my father knelt down and pushed his phone into my line of sight. There was a news story. It was a report from NASA about an object floating through space. Something big was entering our solar system and it was heading our way, but not really our way. It was bound to miss us by a margin so wide it would basically render its presence meaningless. That didn't matter to me, though. I built a model of the solar system for a school project. It was made of wire hangers, big hunks of floral foam, and other bits of junk. Honestly, it looked awful and slightly dangerous. I was very proud. I leapt up from the floor and ran over to the junk drawer. I scrawled a question mark on a ping pong ball and hung it on the loop of wire that made up the farthest edge of our home system. At the end of that ten-year weekend, I began to pack up some of my things into my shitty car so I could drive them upstate to the place where I'd failed to study finance but succeeded studying film. I had just received a call from my boyfriend telling me that he would not be joining me. He dropped out before the first day of class and was heading for Chicago where his aunt lived. I didn't know yet that this meant we had broken up. I would learn that mm, about a week later. The model solar system was on the top of my bookshelf, resting beneath a thick layer of dust. I wasn't really taking anything from those shelves, but I still felt the need to waste my time sorting through the junk and splashing around in the puddles of nostalgia that had pulled around all of it all. Hey Dad, do you remember this thing? I asked as I gingerly lifted the mass of wire and foam. I was actually just thinking about that hunk of junk, he answered. Wait, really? Why? He reached over, flicked the mystery object, and said, I just saw another story about that. They said it changed its course. Oh, is he going to cream us now? Nope, it's still going to miss. Weird. Eh, they probably just got the math wrong the first time. Maybe they got it wrong this time, too. Maybe I need to start stockpiling bottled water and canned beans. And then he blasted out that sort of wheezing laugh that all dads default to over time. The changes kept coming, and after a whole lot of checking and double-checking, there was only one clear conclusion. Somebody, or something, had a hand on the wheel, and was steering this particular ping-pong ball. It was a weird way to find out about alien life. There's no landing on the White House lawn or anything like that. Just a few data points lined up in such a way that it became undeniable, to most people at least, that something else out there had agency. After that, things went about how you'd expect. There were doomsayers and panicked whalers hunkering down in bunkers, Cults sprung up, and splinter religious sects attached their own significance to the news. 
Pamphlets flooded the street proclaiming that Jesus, Krishna, Mr. Rogers, or whoever was at the wheel of this thing, and it was coming to save us, or to damn us, or to do some combination of the two. There were starry-eyed wannabe Carl Sagan's, or, or maybe Carl's Sagan, utterly convinced that whoever was coming must be some sort of enlightened science Buddha, out to show us the secrets of the universe. I wanted to be like them so much, but sex, elections, and true crime documentaries had taught me that things tended to play out in the dumbest and least satisfying way possible. I was walking out of a screening of a movie about a talking dog when the pictures first surfaced. We knew it was a planet, or at least was the size and shape of one. It wasn't quite as big as Earth, but it was larger than Mars. Other than its dimensions, it wasn't spitting out that much info we could use. It was probably cold. It was probably dark. The pictures confirmed this. It was a silent, dead world of bare mountains and still oceans. There was no sign of life, no city structures, nothing but open plains and cloudless skies. I looked at them for about 40 seconds, and then I went to work on my review of the dog movie. Over time, pictures from the rogue planet became so numerous that new ones stopped being news stories. The planet enjoyed a few cycles as a fad fascination, and now we're all just getting impatient and underwhelmed. I went to parties that I hated and ate breakfast that I loved without ever thinking about it. I had short, awful relationships with annoying men during which not a single conversation about the rogue planet was held. Though my father and I talked about it on the last day we had together. We talked about a lot of things. It was a good day, but that didn't make it any easier. There's a side effect of a long life that doesn't get talked about much. It's the gradual compression of time. Seconds get shorter the more of them you consume. I had my fair share of seconds by the time the probe was launched. To me, it feels like barely a day passed between learning that something had launched off the rogue planet and its eventual arrival. The planet had been still for so long and now there was a sudden flurry of activity. All the panic, all the excitement, and the overwhelming weight of global uncertainty flooded back in. We had let ourselves forget about the mind at the helm when further proof of it failed to turn up. Now we were learning about it all over again. Important men in ugly suits argued about what to do for so long that we didn't end up doing anything at all. Nothing intercepted the probe. Nobody was there to meet it when it breached the upper reaches of our atmosphere. There must have been eyes on it, and plenty of media recording it, but I've never seen any of it. I was combing my hair and seeing my father's face in the mirror. I chuckled lightly at the banal absurdity of linear time, and then all the power went out. It must have been some sort of EMP, I guess. I remember hearing that a nuke detonated at high altitude to create an effect like that. I think I learned about that from some crummy action movie or a techno-thriller designed to scare the kind of old man that I had become. The power never came back on. We fought and cried over generators and bottled water. A kid on a bike bashed my head in with a baseball bat over a can of navy beans and a folding knife. Without my body to weigh me down, I went for a long stroll. I first saw one of the machines at the center of an empty town. I floated past fallen trees and rusted cars until I saw it sticking up from the earth like a big metal thumb. Smaller contraptions that looked like copper wire mayflies flew in and out of it, and then up toward the white sky. I saw other machines, too. I saw vast, stout ones that looked like squatting toads leaking smoke into the air, and slender black metal whales wearing elaborate gowns of nets and tubes gliding through the ocean. Around all of them swarmed the mayflies. I don't know what they were collecting, but I guess they wanted it more than we did. Now they're done, and I'm out beyond the Earth. As the mayflies left, I followed them up to space. I don't know how long we've been drifting when we finally come to a stop. I see the planet. It looks just as dead as it did in the photos, except now it's peeled open, revealing a massive jaw of metal, stone, and crystal. The flies pour straight into the jaw, and it closes slowly and silently. I have no interest in following this dead world, and even less in returning to mine. Maybe I'll figure out where my father went.